Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book. We're going to look at a number of different passages for our scripture reading. The first one being 1 Timothy chapter 4. And verse 13. Today we're talking about the ordinary means of grace, or what I have entitled the means of grace, which are called ordinary but are anything but ordinary as we understand them. But we'll try to clear that up as we go through God's Word together. Uh, notice 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. I'm going to read verse 1 as well. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 26 and verses 26 through 28 beginning in verse 26 now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the, the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given them thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And finally, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. I still, still hear the leaves rattling. Uh, I think we're about there. First of all then, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1, First of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high position that we may lead a peaceable peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth this is God's word let us pray father we thank you for your word, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we pray that it would have its way in our hearts today. That the word that comes forth of you from you today will not return to you void or empty, but will accomplish your purposes and prosper where you send it. And this we pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. Been doing a pretty lengthy series on biblical foundations for change. And last week, you remember, maybe you don't, you weren't here, but I talked about uh, union and communion with Christ, about growing into our intimacy with God. And we talked a lot about what the Bible had to say about union with Christ and what the Bible had to say about participating in life with Him in uh, communion. But today I wanted to give you the three principal means by which we grow in our understanding of our union and communion with Christ and what really energizes us and strengthens us and um, impels us forward in the Christian life. And these are the means of grace which have fallen upon hard times in many churches. When you read about new churches today, hear the kind of words you hear about uh, young new churches. They're radical. They're epic. They're revolutionary. They're transformative. They're ultimate. They're extreme. They're emergent. They're alternate. They're the next big thing. They're impactful. They're on the edge. They are beyond. They are literally bombshells. Awesome. Legendary. Innovative. Everything has to have anymore an exclamation point to catch our attention these days. And for many of us, the worst word in anybody's vocabulary is the word ordinary. And yet that is what we are looking at today, the ordinary means of grace. If you look at the quote in the beginning of the bulletin from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 88, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of our redemption? And the answer is the outward and or there's that word, ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the words. The word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made to be effectual to the elect for salvation. Now who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary? I've never seen that bumper sticker. Who wants to be an ordinary person in an ordinary town and a member of an ordinary church with ordinary friends and callings? For some reason, we all believe our life has to count. We have to leave a mark. We have a legacy to leave behind that makes a difference. And this has to be something that we can manage and measure and maintain. We have to live up to our own Facebook profile. Yet there seems to be a restlessness even with restlessness. There seems to be a lot of us are becoming less eager to jump on the bandwagon and trailblaze totally new paths to greatness. Truth be told, it always is actually easier to dream big, pull up roots, and become anonymous to start over with a new set of upwardly mobile peers. And then to do it all over again somewhere else, reinventing ourselves whenever we want a fresh start and a new set of supporting actors in our B-movie. There's nothing wrong with moving city to the city or pursuing adrenaline racing callings, but the hype creeps into every area of our life. It makes us tired and depressed and sometimes mean. Given the dominance of the next best thing in our society, it is not at all surprising that the Christian subculture is passionate 
about superlatives. Many Christians were raised in an environment of managed expectations and measurable results. Like other aspects of life, growth in Christ as individuals and as churches could be programmed with predictable outcomes. Many Christians express astonishment when a fellow believer is content with ordinary Christian life, with an ordinary church among ordinary Christians where God showers his extraordinary gifts through ordinary means of grace. We are an ordinary means of grace church. We do believe that God has established, and for lack of a better word, and I've been searching all week, he has channels or conduits or pipelines or delivery systems through which he communicates to us the very life, energy, and power to live the Christian life. Amen. And these are somewhat surprising because, I mean, we all think of things like, well, I want to get pumped up for Jesus, so I'm going to go to a conference somewhere. Or I'm going to go listen to these outstanding speakers. Or I'm going to go do, you know, go to a retreat center. And, uh, you know, and there's nothing per se absolutely wrong with those. But there's nothing like what God has prescribed. Nobody has come up with a better idea than God has as to how a Christian is supposed to grow in the faith. And so what I want to do today is talk about these three and uh, I've been thinking about them all week, and I have far more here to say than I will ever get to, but I'm going to try. So uh, it's going to be like taking a drink out of a fire hydrant, but it will be fun. Have you ever taken a drink out of a fire hydrant? Well, when I was a little boy, I did. And uh, it knocked me down, needless to say. But that was fun, too. First, I want us to see the Word, the Word of God, and essentially what the framers of the Westminster Confession and the Reformed tradition has always said is the necessity of preaching, preaching as a means of grace, a delivery system, as it were, of God's grace. Behind the Word as a means of grace lies a classical statement from the second Helvetic confession and its marginal note, it says this, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. The Word of God is the normal means of conversion to salvation. Now, when we speak of these means of grace, some people have 12 means of grace. That would be Wayne Grudem. The Catholics have seven sacraments. We have two uh, other Christians say no, uh, you know, like uh, doing a, a, a labyrinth or, or going away uh, at a sweat lodge somewhere or whatever is, is a means of grace. If everything's a means of grace, nothing's a means of grace. But here is what the scripture is emphasizing in Timothy. These are the normal means of God's work by the Spirit in the hearts of his people. The Word is not the efficient cause of salvation. Rather, it, it, it is the instrumental cause. It is the mode and means and occasion and condition, the instrumental means through which faith is engendered. The preaching of the Word creates faith in your heart. And faith is the primary grace of the Christian life because 
Everything we have, we receive. Faith is the principal grace. It is the empty hand that receives from God. And all of these outward means of grace have to do with what God does, not with what we do. And so the preaching of the Word is the way in which God works in our hearts through the internal operation of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the preaching of the Word bears fruit immediately. Sometimes it takes many, many years. Sometimes it's not effective at all. You read the parable of the four soils and the sower and the seed, and really only one of them is productive. So why is preaching necessary? Because of the nature of God. At the very heart of Christian doctrine and the doctrine of the Trinity is love and communication. God is relation. He's not just a force. He's not just a power. He's not just another. He's personal. He is relational. Jesus talks of the glory he shared with the Father in eternity. Jesus, uh, the Father, advances his kingdom through his Son, for it is his will that his Son should have preeminence in all things. The Father loves the Son. The Son honors the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son. Uh, and so the eternal vibrance of the living Trinity, an indivisible union of life, communicated, received, and mutually possessed. And so communication is at the heart of who God is and at the heart of what God does. And so in the incarnation, we know, for example, that Adam was created in the image of God, but the second Adam, the Word, the Logos, became flesh, is the image of God. He's not made in the image of God. He is the image of God par excellence. And in the incarnation, the Son took our nature into union. And in terms of personal identity, Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal Son of the Father. And so, God saves us because He loves us and He has spoken to us and He reveals Himself and opens Himself up for communion with us. And so, because we as creatures as personal beings made in the image of God, were made by God for the purpose of partnership, fellowship, communion, and union with Him. If something is missing in your life, it might not be that you don't have a good enough job. It might not be that you didn't marry the right person. It might not be that you're not smart enough. What's missing in your life is you're missing the whole point. Your whole life up to this point has been a splendid exercise in missing the point. And what is the point? Knowing God. Amen. You were made by Him. You were shaped by Him. You were fitted by Him for communion and partnership and having the deepest connection to Him. And there's only, there's something about that that supersedes everything else. So preaching is personal communication and, and it is a personal communication of the heart of God, as it were, uh, particularly seen in His covenant relations with us. Central to the flow of all covenant history is the constantly repeated promise where God says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Verbal communication was necessary even before the fall. We see that. 
It's disclosed in the meaning of creation and the purpose of human existence. God announced to the humans, Adam and Eve, the nature of their task. He instructed Adam about his agricultural responsibilities, a function both priestly and kingly, and the outcome if he proved disobedient. The record after the fall when God walked with them in the garden and called out to Adam suggests that such communication was a regular feature of the original uh, setting of creation and our pre-fall existence. Therefore, verbal communication of God's Word is pervasive in the Old Testament. Preaching was at the heart of worship. The prophets constantly engaged the community by word, whether it was written or spoken. In the New Testament, more than 30 verbs describe the concept of preaching. And so speech is the normal means God uses to communicate with us. Um, There's a church father by the name of Gregory Nyssa, who favored the primacy of sense knowledge of the visual over words, which suggest, he suggests, are inherently ambiguous. That is, Gregory says, visible objects are more readily comprehensible while God needs no words to make known his mind. Now, that had a huge effect in the Eastern Church, where worship is strongly visual with icons everywhere and the comings and goings of priests into and out of the sanctuary symbolizing Christ's coming to feed his people, the entrance into heaven and the opening of gates into paradise. But this is not God's normal way of communicating. On God's appearance to Israel at Sinai, Moses recorded, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Whereas the visual can certainly be evocative, it is inherently ambiguous. And so words are uniquely adaptable. Words can promise, they can warn, they can encourage, they can rebuke, they can inform, elicit, express sorrow or thanksgiving, praise, advice, or command, and many other things beside. Words can affect actions and bring about change. For example, if I was to scream fire right now, that would usually produce, to most aware and alert people, get the heck out of this building. Go. Um, And an inconsiderate comment will usually produce some sort of bitterness. But... The Heidelberg Catechism places preaching in the context of our deliverance from sin. Question 65. Since then we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only. Where does faith come from? The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. And so the Word has priority and out of it the sacraments illustrate uh, visually what is meant by the preaching. Uh, When the Word of God is now preached in the church by pastors who are lawfully called, we believe the very Word of God is preached and received by the faithful. The Word of God is not to be feigned nor to be expected from heaven, and that now the Word itself which is preached to us is to be regarded not in the minister who preaches it, who although he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless the word of God that abides true and good. So 
the efficacy or the effectiveness of preaching depends not on the minister, but on the Word of God itself. And so one of the most important things for us to remember is that preaching is connected to the Holy Spirit. The Reformed confessions uniformly witness to the inseparability of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. How do you know you're in a Spirit-filled place? You're in a Spirit-filled place when it's full of the Word of God. Not vacuous or empty of the Word of God, but full of the Word of God. And so, in their work as the means of grace, the Word and Spirit are inseparable, preaching included how is the word made effectual to salvation this is from the larger catechism the spirit of god makes the reading but especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of enlightening convincing and humbling sinners of driving them out of themselves and drawing them to christ or conforming them to his image subduing them to his will strengthening them against temptations and corruptions and building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation the Word of God is to be preached only by those who are sufficiently gifted and duly approved and called. How is the Word of God to be preached by those called? They are to labor in the ministry of the Word, to preach sound doctrine diligently in season and out of season, plainly not enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and to power faithfully, wisely, zealously, with fervent love to God and the souls of the people. And so the preaching of the Word itself carries with it spiritual power. And the demonstration of the Spirit and His power is evidenced by faithful preaching of sound doctrine, wisdom, zeal, and love. Preaching is an effectual means of grace. Diligent and faithful preaching is the instrumental cause while the Holy Spirit is the efficient cause. The Word without the Spirit totally ineffective the spirit without the word inaudible the spirit is the author of scripture and continues to speak it in it today the word and the spirit go together however the spirit is sovereign and free to work as he wills moreover the word whether the text of scripture or the message proclaimed by the preacher does not have power in itself we can read paul's uh 1 Thessalonians 1.5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Preaching of the word is accompanied by the ministry of the Spirit. And so Paul says this in other places throughout uh, the New Testament. Uh, he, he, he's, he's giving the Thessalonian church the grounds for their assurance since they were subject to persecution. But uh, in a similar passage in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25, Paul contrasts his preaching with the Greek passion for rhetoric. In both cases, word only and reliance on human wisdom referred to pagan or Jewish sources, not Christian preaching. And so Paul's preaching was not 
I, I can't think of a better word than this, appealing or sexy to the Corinthians. What they were looking for were these rhetorical Greek speakers who could light it up, who could really, uh, really had a glib tongue. And so the thing to remember, I think, as we think about the preaching of the Word is that God's Word carries with it the authority of God Himself and cannot be detached from Him. According to Scripture, the Word of God shares in all the works of God. It creates, His Word does. It maintains the universe. It brings about regeneration. It is spirit and life. His Word raises the dead. His Word will never pass away. He's exalted His Word above His name. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father. And so the New Testament attributes efficacy to the Word. It is the Word of the Spirit, the Word of Christ, the living Word, the Spirit who breathed out the words of Scripture, accompanies the reading and proclamation of those words, and he himself and his words are inseparable. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. The Spirit uses means but he does not speak only to wander off and leave his ambassadors in the lurch there's a close connection here also with the sacraments the sacraments in themselves have no efficacy that is effectiveness for it is the spirit of god who makes them effective for believers however the spirit works in and through the sacraments so that the faithful feed on christ in the Lord's Supper. And so preachers of the gospel are called and required to exemplify the, in their lives the work of the Spirit and to be an example to the flock. And so, again, the emphasis here is on the preaching of God's Word. For the congregation receiving the Word as blessing is connected to the extent uh, to which its members have prepared themselves to hear it. In other words, do you come to worship service on Sunday morning already prepared and hungry to hear God's Word? And so preaching is significant. You know, you may think I'm just preaching out into the air, but I'm not. There are churches today, especially of the emergent variety and the new kind of Christian variety, who are now saying that preaching is not dialogical enough. And so we need to get away from preaching. We need to use multimedia. And we need to use every other kind of enhancement because people have the attention span of a gnat. I was walking out of the gym yesterday to the parking lot and I passed, I counted, 20 people. 20 people. I'm from the South. When you walk by a person, you at least look at them. Sometimes you nod your head. If you're really being bold, you might say, hey, how's it going? How you doing? All that. Now, I've lived here long enough to get over that. But <laughs> I walked. I walked from the gym to my parking lot, which is pretty good distance. Not one person looked at me. Now, it's not that I'm desiring people to look at me, but not one person. You know where their head was? Tell me where their head was. Right there. Right there. In the gym. Right there. Now, 
Does that mean maybe that I should text the message to people? Does that mean that we should change how we do it? No. No. God is sovereign. God uses means. And he uses the means of his word preached to draw us into that unbelievable circle of intimacy and fellowship shared by the other members of the Godhead. It is through his word that deep, transformative change occurs. And primarily, now, what about the reading of the word? Reading of the word is important. I work very hard on trying to read the word with emphasis when I come to worship because I think it's important. Studying the Bible on your own is a great way. Uh, as well. Meditating on Scripture, memorizing the promises of God. All of those are fruitful ways, but the preaching, there's something about the gathered church and the preaching of the Word that is unique and set apart. And there's something God does through the preach, faithful preaching of the Word that's powerful. Amen. Now, Anything that diverts hearers' attention away from the Word of God is counter to the nature and intent of preaching. The pastor, the preacher, is there to witness to Christ, not himself. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And so some people are very serious uh, in terms of preaching to make sure that they're always pointing to Christ. And we are to preach Jesus and him crucified. We are to preach Christ. Now, that's point number one. I'm tempted to stop, but I need to do point number two at least, and that's the sacraments. And I probably will only get par partially through this, but that's okay, because I already planned in my mind to do it again next week, because I think it's that important. And so the sacraments and God's covenant prom uh, promises. Together with the word and under it are the sacraments supporting and reinforcing the verbal message. Now some of you are, might be bothered by us even using the word sacrament because it sounds what? It sounds Roman Catholic. Well, they didn't invent the word. <laughs> It happened before them. The word was in use. Sacra just means sacred, but it was used in Roman times uh, in Latin to mean uh, an oath that was taken by a soldier or to an obligation that was signed. But it has to do as a substitute for the Greek word musterion, which means mystery. There is something in the sacraments as we look at it and observe it uh, far more is going on than what the naked eye can see and God has revealed to us in scripture what the sacraments actually do and what he does by them but in each stage I sort of want to lay the groundwork for the sacraments here for a moment because I think it's very important to do so at each stage of covenant history God reinforces his promises by material signs by which he assures us of the truth of what he has said and what he has done. Underlying this is the first sentence in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, God created both matter and spirit, and thus can use matter as a vehicle for transmitting spiritual grace. 
Christianity is not something confined to the spiritual dimension. It involves the whole of life. Christ's redemption upon the cross not only saves people and causes us to be resurrected with a new body, but ultimately transforms the whole of existence, material as well. We are not Gnostics. We are not Neoplatonists. You know what a Neoplatonist would say, wouldn't you? He said, we don't need all that matter. We're just in the spirit, man. We're just Maybe they didn't talk that way. I made him sound like a 60s guy. St. <laughs> Augustine had uh, Neoplatonist uh, uh, influence. So did uh, Gregory of Nyssa. I, I mentioned, mentioned him a while ago. But Neoplatonism and Gnosticism, which basically says all matter is evil. All matter, if not evil, is inferior. Therefore, the heart of the matter is to get to the spiritual. It's just like, if you were a Platonist, you would say, I would say to you, Right here is a chair. You can sit in it. It's a real chair. You know what the Platonists say? That's not real. That chair's not real. By the way, you're not real either. Nothing is real. This is just a copy of the reality outside of you called chairness. And so people in Christian living, well-meaning Christians who love Jesus, I'm sure, probably more than me, have fallen into a Neoplatonist kind of thing by decrying matter and saying that the only thing that matters is the spiritual. And so we have to baptize everything we do in order to please God. No, we don't. God loves material creation. He loves matter. He died to redeem it and to make it new. And so Christianity is not something confined to the spiritual dimension. It involves the whole of life. The creation, the incarnation, the bodily resurrection are proof that God cares about matter. The biblical account of creation focuses attention on the material world. We read little or nothing about the creation of the angels. While God created all things, including the spiritual realm, the physical and the visible world takes center stage. The incarnation points in the same direction. The eternal son experienced the world of matter and consequently he redeemed it. We are material beings and the entire creation awaits for the glorious liberation at Christ's return. Both now and forever, the son has a human body glorified human body the older I get the more I appreciate that the more I like to hear that because the older you get your physical body can't keep up with what's going on in your head um, I go back and think about what I used to could be able to do try to do it now body does not cooperate with me why because we age as a result of sin but the physical aspect of creation and redemption is underlined by the resurrection from the dead. On the third day, we know Jesus rose from the tomb bodily. It is a wonderfully true that Jesus Christ's body was transformed, now glorified beyond our current conceptions, yet it was and is forever the same body that bore the nail prints from the cross. While as Paul has said, he entered a new phase of life according to the Spirit, kata numa, Jesus expressly denied that it was a spirit when he, in his post-resurrection appearances, emphasizing by eating a piece of broiled fish. 
Might have been better if it was fried, but he ate a piece of broiled fish in his post-resurrection body. He told them to touch him. Isn't that amazing? We believe in the resurrection of the body. We are embodied creatures and that salvation includes the redemption of the body. Christianity is earthly and physical as well as spiritual. And neglect of the material nature of the gospel is akin to Gnosticism, which is regarded matter is inherently inferior to the spiritual. If it were inferior and if our salvation consisted merely in the existence of a spiritual state, we ourselves would not be saved. And so, God uses material signs to reinforce His promises. In the Garden of Eden before the fall, there was something called the Tree of Life. You've all heard of that. And eating of this tree was associated with everlasting life. This is reinforced again in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 1 through 2, where the leaves of the Tree of Life are for the healing of the nations. In the Noachic covenant, which established the creation order after the flood, God appointed the rainbow as a sign that he would never again flood the earth. God instituted circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant as flesh was removed in circumcision. So God removes the heart of unbelief and grants a new heart and a new spirit. In the Mosaic covenant, Passover commemorated Yahweh's mighty deliverance of Israel from bondage. It's a lot of table fellowship in the Bible, by the way. I'll get to that next week. And so, as God delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt and on the way to inheriting the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, the Exodus looked forward to the new Exodus to be accomplished later. In the new covenant, Jesus appointed baptism in the name of the Trinity to portray cleansing from sin and union with him in his death and resurrection at the supper he introduced was to nourish people to eternal life. He appeals not only to our ears through the words he utters, but also to our, our eyes with his sacramental signs. And so there is a sign and there is a reality that the sign points to. Each of these signs accompanied a new stage in the outworking of God's covenant purposes. His actions and words in the covenants were reinforced by the signs. The signs were not the reality. The signs pointed to the reality, much as a signpost directs us to a destination other than itself. The reality and the sign are different. However, in each case, the sign is appropriate to the reality and uh, with a definite and visible connection. The tree of life gives everlasting life. The rainbow denotes the triumph of grace over judgment. The Passover indicates Yahweh's passing over and sparing his people from wrath and guiding them to their inheritance. Washing with water in baptism portrays cleansing from the greater filth of sin. Bread and wine in the Lord's Supper demonstrate Christ feeding and nourishing us to eternal life. Sign and reality are distinct, but the connection is inseparable. And so the sacraments are crucial because they present Christ to us. Robert Bruce, who I'll say more about next week, remarked concerning the Lord's Supper. If Christ is not both eaten and digested, he can do us no good. But this digestion cannot exist where there is not a greedy appetite to receive him. 
He added in the supper, we get something new. We get Christ better. That's what he said. We get Christ better than we could have before. That is what makes the neglect of the sacraments so devastating. Moreover, since Christ is the theme of the sacraments, the gospel is presented vividly before our eyes whenever baptism or the Lord's Supper takes place. Which is why we do the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Why? Because we're feeding upon Christ. We're being strengthened and nourished by our union with Christ through the means of the Lord's Supper. In each case, the major point is not what we do, but always what God does. It may be tempting to think of the sacrament as merely human rites. However, the sacraments are preeminently signs of God, indicating what He has done or what He will do. They go far beyond the surface appearance and bring us into direct contact with eternal realities in which the grace of God is powerfully at work. Well, one last thing before I close. I want you to consider a couple of examples. First, we've already mentioned the tree of life. Tree of life in the garden was not expressly forbidden to, to Adam until after the fall. When Adam reaped the covenant penalty of death, he and Eve were expelled from Eden, the sanctuary of God, the temple of God, as it were, and their way back was barred by cherubim with flaming swords who guarded the tree of life, lest Adam eat of it and live forever in a fallen state. There was a connection between eating of the fruit of the tree and living forever, and there was as there was between eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and experiencing sin and death. This was not magic, which never occurs in God's dealings. The most plausible implication is that should Adam have remained obedient, he would have been granted access to the tree of life and thus to eternal life for himself and everyone else under his headship. The tree of life appears again, as I mentioned earlier, in Revelation 22, 1 through 2, located beside the river flowing out of the heavenly city. Its leaves are for the healing of the nation. Again, the tree brings healing, and with it, life and blessing. Eternal salvation consists in eating from it, while those forbidden to do so are under God's curse. Again, the tree is connected with eternal life in a signifying and instrumental sense. Only God can give life. He put the tree in the garden, placed it alongside the heavenly river, and he grants and forbids access to it. Only he gives life. And because he himself is life, only he has life in himself. The sign of the tree of life points us to God. Points us to God. And so the sign is something God himself notes. His own recognition of the sacraments he has appointed impacts his fulfillment of those signs. In both cases, the major point in the sacrament is not what we do, but what God does. These are signs for God. Likewise, the focus of circumcision and Passover, as with baptism in the Lord's Supper, is on the mighty acts of God. We are baptized into the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that belong to God. The indivisible action of the three persons of the Trinity is the theme in the sacraments we have to do 
with the living God. And so what I'm trying to communicate to you this morning by the two things I've talked about, next week I will talk about how God communicates grace to us through both baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer. But this week what I wanted to get across to you is the preaching of the Word is the primary means by which God uh, communicates and creates faith in the heart of people. And so the Word and Spirit working together in tandem do in us what no one or anything else could ever do. They make us new. They transform us. The Word of God either hardens you or it melts you. It either draws you to Christ or causes you to turn your back and walk away. But the Word of God is powerful. It's alive as the Spirit takes it and does His surgical work on our hearts week after week. But the sacraments, our forefathers in the faith, whose shoulders we stand on to see further, we hope, place great emphasis on these things. They're ordinary means of grace, but there's nothing ordinary about them. They are extraordinary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together to consider these matters. And we do pray that you would grant to us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, and that we would be receptive of God's Word, and that we would examine to see whether those things said today are true and have scriptural authority. And we pray that we may not, not only hear it to gain information, but hear it to have it change our whole world. And this, Lord, as we continue to worship, we pray that we might give as people who are grateful for the unspeakable gift of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.